look around the world at other top stories of 1959. The antics of Governor Earl Long of Louisiana cost him his state's support in 1959. He ranted at the legislature, got committed to a mental clinic, then lost an election for lieutenant governor. Here is Long in action. I'm speaking against the advice of most of my doctors. I'll be back. Next weekend, I'm leaving on a vacation. I thought I owed it to you to come look you in the eye and let as many of you see me and see I'm living and I'm not nuts. If I'm nuts, I've been nuts all my life. Thank you and God bless you. I'm nuts, I've been nuts all my life. <laughs> that's a that's a voice from yesteryear when governors felt the need to tell us that they weren't crazy, and that that's how you can tell that that these 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 folks weren't crazy because they told you that they weren't crazy. This this is an interesting uh, sensation for me being back in front of a, a microphone. I'm like a voice from yesteryear as well. Uh, for folks who who have been with the La Politics podcast for a while, I, I went back and looked. Our last episode was recorded. In June 2018, we did 58 episodes over four seasons. That makes this episode 59 of season five. Uh, we have a real uh, simple uh, mission on this podcast. We like to humanize the folks who work in politics and kind of peel back the layers. Uh, we like to cover the waterfront, everything, everyone from elected officials to journalists to, to donors and lobbyists. Uh, our last two episodes... If, to give you any idea of that spectrum, the last two episodes were Alton Ashey of Advanced Strategies. He was a right-hand man of John Bell Edwards, uh, represented video poker interest. And then the last episode was Gene Mills, president of Family Forum, who often opposes those same gambling interests. So we're going to try to cover that same waterfront uh, moving forward. In case you don't know, this is a podcast for people who love Louisiana politics. I am Jeremy Alford, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is the La Politics Report. Underwritten by Advantis Consulting and recorded live from the mobile studios of Forum Bureau, we endeavor to be your political entertainment and a window into the Bayou State's colorful past. Our guest today is Richard James Nelson, born in McAllen, Texas on May 20th, 1986. Richard is a former state representative and the current secretary of the Department of Revenue and the first guest on this relaunch of the La Politics Report podcast. Richard, thank you for showing up and, and, and spending some time with me. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. We were talking uh, b- before this. It was an interesting conversation. I think interest, uh, Richard is one of the most interesting people in Louisiana politics. Uh, before the mics were even hot, we talked about Argentinian politics and French philosophers and Darth Vader impressions. Uh, there's a lot about Richard I find el- uh, interesting that we're going to get to. But, you know, you told me b- before we started that you can judge how busy you are by the state of your haircut. And you do, you see that during regular sessions of the legislature, people start to kind of fall behind on, on those things. Uh, I think for me, it's the state of my desk, what, what my desk looks like. What, what, what is the current state of your desk and what, what is on your desk? So I think Einstein said that if a, a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, what then is an empty desk? So, <laughs> you know, I think at the end of the day, my, my desk, I try and keep pretty clean. It's, uh, it, it stuff piles up though, unfortunately. So... Luckily, I try, you know, I'm a millennium, I'm a little young. I try to do everything electronically. So that keeps your desk a little bit cleaner when you're just your inbox is cluttered. We'll have to check on your desk once you've uh, served as secretary a little bit longer because it's only been a month or so, a month or so, a month and a month and a week. Well, you know, we're, we're going to get into some of that. But I think two of the most interesting things for folks who who, who may not know you is, is you have this really interesting background in, in the uh, intelligence community and, and you've been struck by lightning. I don't I don't want to bury the lead 
But let, let's start with with the, the your work in, in intelligence. What what was your experience there, and, and how did that come about? So I worked for the Department of State. Uh, I was in the Foreign Service of the State Department. Um, I was in law school, and I went to a career fair at LSU, and I met a guy, and he said, "Hey, do you want to go travel the world and you know see interesting people and uh, do interesting things?" And I said, "Sure," and you know signed up and went right out of law school, went to move to Washington D.C. Spent about a year or so in training there, and then moved to Germany. And uh, then the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, and then came back to D.C. and I ran um, a lot of projects in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan. You know, my basic role was um, protecting embassies around the world from terrorism and espionage. So it was a, it was an exciting thing. There's a lot of uh, cool stuff that went on, and you know, I got to see a lot of the world. And you know, getting struck by lightning was 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 part of that. I was in Switzerland. I was actually just on vacation, uh, but. You know, really, I, I just as a, from a young age, I got to experience a lot of the world, and I've seen a lot of things. Uh, you know, the good and the bad. Um, I, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan and Libya and um, Iraq a couple times, and so, and that was when you know, kind of the heat of the wars there. And that, now they're all kind of wrapped up, but uh, you know, it was a, definitely an experience that you know, for a kid from Louisiana who you know didn't have a lot of world experience, it really opened my eyes to you know, kind of the problems of the world. And I, you know, I like to think too, is the, you know, the difference that government makes in people's lives. Because you can drive across a border and, you know, people's lives change 100%. Even though it's an imaginary line, you go on one side, people have electricity and jobs and opportunity, and you go on the other side and they're living like they did 1,500 years ago. So um, you see that impact that good government has on people's lives. And I think that that's something that, you know, I brought back with me to Louisiana to try and bring, you know, I think positive change here. When you talk about those stark contrasts of, of what you know is home and, and what our lives are and what you've seen overseas, is there, are there specific moments where your mind goes? So I'll tell you what, you never appreciate Walmart as much when, <laughs> as once you've spent a few years living overseas and then you come back and you'd say, I can go get, you know, 13 donuts at, you know, not five o'clock in the morning, anytime that I want or anything else you need. You know, America is definitely the best country in the world, but it's also the most convenient. And you really don't realize that until you uh, spend a lot of time overseas. So, you know, I, I think we take the freedoms that we have, the opportunity we have for granted. I think, uh, you know, especially in Louisiana, we, you know, I don't know if anybody, everybody that's involved in Louisiana politics has to be somewhat cynical about, you know, what you can do and what government does and, and how it functions. But I think when you go around the world, you realize that it, there actually uh, are places that are significantly worse and the government there doesn't give people a voice to really fix things. I think, you know, one of the things that I've always tried to push is that really we have the opportunity, we have the ability to fix all of our problems here. Uh, and that's something that they don't have everywhere else. Now, I, I asked you about that stark contrast, and it sounds like to me your answer was capitalism. I, I am a diehard supporter of capitalism. I would say Milton Friedman is one of my heroes. So um, I think that at the end of the day, nothing has improve the lives of the average person more than free market enterprise. I mean, that's the reality. You know, Queen Elizabeth didn't have to worry about indoor plumbing. Queen Elizabeth had a pretty easy life, you know, hundreds of years ago. But for the average person, nothing has improved as much um, as far as, you know, the technology that you have available, the quality of life that you have, your ability to, you know, live longer. Um, capitalism is really the source of that prosperity in the world in general, but especially in the United States. So uh, I know you're a reader of The Economist as well. I imagine that you have, uh, you probably have, have a, a brokerage account. I do. Uh, do you, do you, 
handpick stocks or do you are you buy into a fund or do you watch the market on a daily basis? Uh, you know, I watch the market. I don't I don't pick stocks anymore. I have a, you know, a, a S&P 500 tracker or something, but I I have which is good to have. Lately. I have one stock, AT and T, that I've owned for a long time. That was, you know, just something that I picked. I've I've sold all the other ones that I've ever picked up over time. But um, I I think if you read the literature, picking stocks is a tough game to win. So I, I don't do that anymore. Um, you said that 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 you met someone who encouraged you to go into the intelligence community. Were were you recruited, or did you meet a friend who was already? doing that or no it was just i i honestly had no idea about any of that stuff i was um i went to a career fair at lsu it was in the pmac and just some really? guy just standing there that's right and he he actually handed me a folder and he said here you have to fill out this paper application this was in like 2010 and i was like i'm i'm not gonna fill out a paper application this is a waste of time and it's funny because my girl my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife was like you're in law school you got nothing to do you know just fill out the paper and send it in um and that started the whole process, but I had to fill, actually write, you know, write stuff down, print out pieces of paper and, you know, FedEx it to them. I couldn't uh, just apply online. So it was a different time back then, I guess. We're joined by my son, uh, Keaton Alford, and he's in fifth grade. Uh, he is out this week for, uh, for Mardi Gras. So he gets to, he gets to be here and, and, and listen to this. And we were talking earlier about, I don't mean to laugh because it's not funny. You were struck by lightning. Uh, Keaton's first question was, did it hurt? And that's a, gr- that's a great question. You said it hurt a lot. Oh, I said getting struck didn't hurt. It was waking up afterward that that uh-huh. really hurt. So it's kind of like the fall doesn't kill you. It's the sudden stop at the end. Uh, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, we um, were actually, my brother was visiting us while we lived in Germany. And we, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Goldeneye, the James Bond movie Goldeneye. He like bungee jumps off a dam in the first uh, first scene in that movie. And so that dam is actually located in Locarno, Switzerland. And my brother said, hey, let's go jump off this dam. It's like an 800-foot bungee jump, crazy. And so we go there, we do that bungee jump, which was a crazy experience by itself. And then we went back to the town, we're walking around and, um, you know, just got struck by lightning. We were walking along this lake and the weather wasn't too bad. But anyway, we woke up on the ground and he actually woke up first and looked at me and he's like, why is Richard laying on the ground? And uh, I woke up and I was like, well, what's going on? And my brother actually touched his head and he said, why do I smell burning hair? And he's like, it's me. And uh, I was like, I think we got struck by lightning. So it's it's crazy. But we both got knocked out. We both woke up. And, you know, it felt like I shot lightning out of my toes. And, you know, <laughs> someone dropped books on my head. But it's funny because now I tell people, if I can't remember your name, it's because I got struck by lightning. I used to be pretty sharp. And, you know, I think it took, a, it took some of it away. Well, so, someone who will not forget your name or your birthday or any other date is Jim Inkster. And, and, and the day we're recording this, Friday, February 16th, 2024. I was supposed to say that at the top when I mentioned your, your date so that people will know what today. Anyway, I did it. I, I hit it. Um, you're also on, on Jim Inkster this morning. Uh, how, how did that go? Yeah. You know, I love talking to Jim. He's, a, he's kind of an encyclopedia of knowledge. So he brings up every time before we walked in there, you know, I, I, I told Elizabeth, my um, you know, PR person, she, I was like, hey, look, you know, he's going to say something about how I was born the same day as Cher. And that was like the first thing out of his mouth is, hey, you know, Richard Dilson, born 40 years after one Cher, who's up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So. Yeah, and we're not talking about Cher Nungesser. We're talking about the yeah, Cher. Sonny and Cher. One name, yeah. Cher. Well, that's great. I, I'm born on the same day as, as Richard Nixon. Obviously not the year, but January 9th. So, you know, I got, I got that uh, going for me. Of course, Jim Inkster was just uh, inducted into the Political Hall of Fame. Another person who's in that Hall of Fame is Huey Pierce Long. And that's a personality that you, 
uh, ran against kind of as a candidate for governor. And you talked about the advantages of just being average. And, you know, those those things, I think, captured my imagination. I think captured the imagination of a lot of folks. Uh, One thing you heard about Richard Nelson during the governor's race is, have you heard that stump speech? (laughs) And it got better. It got better and better. I could tell you worked on it. Um, are these ideas that, that you held prior to serving an elected office? Cause a lot of folks look at Huey Long and they think it's humorous. And we started with a, cl- a clip of Earl Long, but you know, the, these men deposited some damages in their wake as well. Sure. You know, I think Huey, you know, love him or hate him made significant changes to the state. I mean, he changed completely our system of government and you know, I think we're still living with that legacy. And in reality, I think he really built a system that was built off of a centralized uh, centralization in Baton Rouge, where all the power and control is run out of the Capitol and the governor's office. And it didn't let locals make a lot of decisions. It made business, I think, um, you know, they had to come pay homage to the governor and the Capitol if they wanted to do anything. And I mean, that's a legacy we're still living with. And I think when you look at why Louisiana, with all the resources that we have, uh, that we continue to struggle and lag behind our neighbors. I think that legacy is a key element in that. And, you know, I think until you get away from it and until you look at other states that are more successful, uh, I think you're, you're really going to continue to lag and you're never going to live up to your me to live up to your potential. You know, one, one of the things I, I say all the time is what we've done uh, with Louisiana having all these resources, what we've done is for the last hundred years, we've used those as a crutch on bad policy as opposed to a competitive advantage. Because when you look at the things that Louisiana has, you know, we got the Mississippi River, we got oil and gas, you know, we got tourism, agriculture, all these things. Um, every state and every country in the world should probably envy that. Um, there is, there's, you know, per capita, we have more resources than probably anybody else. And yet we continue to be at the bottom of all these rankings, right? Why is that? And I think that system of government that Huey set up is a reason, is a key reason why that's, why that persists today. You know, it, it's interesting that, that, you know, a lot of it is mindset. If you read, I think it's Inside the Carnival or Masking the Carnival by Wayne Parent, and he has a, a whole chapter that, that explores this question of whether Louisiana governors are more powerful than governors in other states. And he comes to the conclusion after reviewing all that Louisiana is just dead in the middle, no more powerful, no less powerful than, than any other state. And he, he has this theory that because we've had these larger than life governors like Earl Long, Huey Long. Edwin Edwards, uh, John McKithen, uh, that, you know, the lore somehow overtook the, the reality at some point. And, and I, I feel like that exists in, in a lot of our politics. Uh, you know, I agree with that. I mean, I think when you look at the constitutional powers the governor has, like, I don't think that they significantly differ than other states. Um, but at the end of the day, the governor is the one that has to be on board with almost anything significant that you're trying to do. I mean, I've found that out in my years in the legislature. And it's even, even if the governor isn't opposed to it, it that's not enough. Like the governor have to, has to really actively be in support of things if you want anything significant to change. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I ran for governor is because I, I realized there's only so much you can do being one out of 144 in the legislature. And it's, a, it's really a, a powerful position as if you want to affect change or if you want to stop it. And, you know, that's the reality. We've also learned over time that uh, there's no such thing as second place in Louisiana politics, but sometimes there's pretty good consolation prizes. <laughs> you, you yourself wanted to be governor. You dropped out of that race. I remember at the time looking at someone and saying, there goes our future 
economic development secretary. Of course, I was wrong. Uh, you know, I think if I was right about more things, I'd be making more money than I am now. But um, tell us about that decision to drop out. And did you reach out to, to Jeff Landry? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, so my campaign obviously was always a long shot. I mean, it was never going to be anything but that. And so I needed about, you know, I've said before, I needed about 15 things to go right, right? Lightning to strike 15 places. <laughs> and I think I got about, I got about eight of them, right? So, and then from the spring on, I think it was a, it was a difficult campaign to run. You know, we had a lot of successes, I feel like, you know, going around speaking to people, I was able to, I think, win a lot of people over, but that, you know, just the dynamics of the race were very complicated and there just never really was this any shift of momentum to make any difference. And so by the time the fall rolled, was rolling around, uh, it was kind of the writing was on the wall that, you know, that wasn't really going to happen this time. And so, you know, I, I reached out to Jeff and we just kind of talked about policy. And, you know, I think we agreed on a lot of the stuff. And I, I'd heard him on the campaign trail say a lot about tax reform and taxes. And I think that that was, you know, one of the major planks that I'd had and I'd worked on in the legislature. And so um, I think we, we saw agreement in there on what needed to happen. And so I, you know, I, I felt like it was the right thing to do to endorse him uh, as opposed to just saying, hey, I'm just going to get out and be quiet. I, I've always felt like uh, I think it's Dante, you know, the deepest circle of hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of conflict. Uh, I, I, I think it's worth something to my supporters and not just say, hey, I'm not going to run anymore, but also to tell them where I'm, where I'm going to put my support. And was income tax elimination, has that been a topic of conversation between you two from the time that you were offered a, an appointment? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was something the governor ran on as well. I mean, he said, hey, look, this is what we got to do. And I mean, it's, it's not really, uh, you don't have to be an accountant to figure that out. I mean, you can see the states that are growing significantly, Texas and Florida, right down the street from us, Tennessee, you know, they all don't have an income tax. And I think even from a greater than a tax policy perspective, um, because you can have you can have a good tax policy with an income tax. It's not it's not a killer. But you know, from a marketing perspective of Louisiana's moving in the right direction, attracting people, um, I think not having getting rid of the income tax is one of those things that I think really puts you on the map as far as when people are looking around the country. Well, hey, where am I going to move? Hey, my my job lets me go anywhere. I graduated from LSU. Can I go back? I think. It's a dissuader to people for come back, and I think it's also something that will attract other people to come here. Um, but at the end of the day, even if you don't get rid of the income tax, there's significant improvements we can make to the tax code to make Louisiana more competitive. And you know, those are uh, shouldn't be you, sh you shouldn't lose sight of the fact that even if you don't eliminate the income tax, you can do significant things that will make Louisiana more competitive for people and for business. Are you going to be involved with a proposal next calendar year to eliminate the income tax? So we're discussing, you know, how much, you know, how much can we, how much of the elephant can we bite off in one chew? Um, so that's, uh, it's, we're definitely looking at it. We're discussing, we're trying to figure out what are, you know, what are the possible methods to get there? You know, I proposed, I proposed a few in the legislature while I was there. I mean, that's, I think, uh, I don't know how much you can deviate from that if you actually want to do it in any kind of appreciable time frame. Uh, you know, other states have looked at, you know, basically just kind of phasing, phasing it out over time and reducing it and, you know, shifting your reliance to other taxes. Uh, in Louisiana, it's very complicated because we have so much that's tied into the Constitution. Um, we have so much that historically we haven't relied on, like property tax base. Our sales tax is very high. So there's, you know, you'd have to make changes to it in order to, um, you know, make any kind of elimination of the income tax or even reduction. Um, you can't just say, hey, we're going to raise the sales tax rate. Like it's already the highest in the country. So you really have to make adjustments to the base of the tax and what it's actually affecting versus, you know, just raising the rate, which 
is a political fight, but it's actually, you know, it's relatively simple versus expanding the base. You know, if I, if, if I would have been asked in, in January about the elimination of the income tax, I would have said I felt kind of bullish on that. After this exchange I just had with you, I might say that I feel slightly less bullish. Yeah, I mean, I think the it's a, I think it's a good goal. I think it's a good thing to have. And I think depending on the will of the legislature and you know, how far the governor wants to go, um, I would say it's something that's worth putting on the table to see how far, you know, how far we're willing to go to make that decision. At the same time, it's, you know, four and a half, four and a half billion dollars. And I'll tell you, just as revenue secretary, I really dug in to the every, not just the income tax, but every element of our tax system is very, very complicated. And I would say has significant um, uh, structural problems that have to be addressed. And so uh, to, the, to just say, hey, we're going to get rid of the income tax right off the bat. I mean, next year is, I think, going to be a difficult sell, uh, you know, in all practicality. I think that's a good end goal to have of saying, well, how do we put all the pieces in place so that is a possibility? And I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm focused on right now is in the short term, how can we set us up to have that one day we can actually get rid of it? So you're in office now. You have some administrative and regulatory authority. Have there been any changes at the department yet or anything on, on the horizon? Sure. So we, you know, I had the, um, I would say the, the advantage of being named relatively early. You know, obviously the governor ran or won in the first round of the, of the race. And so I got named, you know, relatively early in the, in the cycle. And so we were able to start putting some of those personnel changes in place, uh, kind of coming up with a plan. Uh, before I actually uh, took over as secretary. And so that way we were able to, you know, we were, didn't have to build the airplane while we were flying it because we had time or we didn't have to worry about the day-to-day -day stuff to try to put some of those structural changes in place. Um, so Jerry Coniglio is my deputy secretary. He's, you know, really great guy. Um, he'd been deputy secretary under Tim Barfield before. And so he has some familiarity with the department that I didn't necessarily bring to the table. Um, and so he's really, he knows a lot of the players, he knows a lot of the people. And so from the actual mechanics of the bureaucracy, he has, a, he has really good experience. So I rely on him. I've empowered him to really make a lot of these changes to, I think, make the department more efficient and make it so that not every decision comes to the secretary's desk and, you know, waits in my inbox because I'm busy doing other things. And I think that's going to improve the, um, the function of the department to have basically two people work in that job instead of just one. Um, and it gives me time to focus on these policy changes and, you know, using my relationship with the legislature and everywhere, all the other stakeholders to try and make these bigger changes. And then I think also just trying to make the department more taxpayer friendly is one of the things we're working, we're working towards. So, you know, one of the th complaints I get all the time is like, I go to the website, I can't figure out anything. I pick up the phone and I call, nobody answers the phone. And it, most of the time it's simple questions. And so we're trying to revamp the website, make it more user-friendly, make the information available to people, and then also make the process so that people don't get unnecessary notices and audits and all this stuff, trying to smooth out, kind of actively try and reduce those, um, you know, hiccups for people so that, you know, their interactions with the Department of Revenue are probably always going to be relatively negative because you're paying taxes, but you want to make it as painless as possible. And that's what we're focused on. Can you still get a marijuana stamp from your department? You can still get a marijuana stamp. And you don't actually have to have weed. You can just go get a stamp. Yeah, right? you can buy it. No, I guess they, they, passed a law, you know, kind of like the, I guess the, you know, the, the Boston Tea Party, you had to yeah. have a, a stamp to put on the tea or something. So they passed a law to say, hey, look, you, everybody had to have this stamp. And the thought was, if people were not uh, paying the tax on it, then you could prosecute them for tax evasion as well as possession of illegal substances. But 
Wow. Practically, most drug dealers don't go buy marijuana stamps. Yeah, from that's tough sale. It's mostly collectors. <laughs> so do you have any policy proposals this calendar year that, that you're involved with? Uh, so this year we're, you know, it's not a fiscal session, so we're kind of limited on what we can do on a, a state policy level. Uh, we're looking at fixing the, the, the property tax sales system. Um, we're probably going to have a proposal on that because it's a relatively complicated process. There was a Supreme Court case last year that, you know, calls into question the constitutionality of Louisiana's current process, and it really doesn't function well anyway. And so that's going to be, a, I would say, more of an insider baseball you know, problem of, you know, trying to make this process good. I don't, I don't know there's going to be a lot of opponents either way. It's just a complicated thing that we're trying to fix. Um, and then I'm not sure what else we're going to be able to dig into. Uh, we're going to see. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's not a fiscal session. So the tax implications on the state level are relatively limited in what you can, what you can fix. What about uh, next calendar year when lawmakers will be able to consider most all tax issues? I would say next year is going to be the big push. Um, the big push for most substantive tax changes is going to be next year. And I, I would predict that it's going to be the biggest, uh, the biggest session for reform that Louisiana has ever had as far as how you know, tax changes. Um, that's why I'm here. I'm not you know, here just to uh, sign refund checks. I'm, I'm really trying to make those Big changes that I think will make the state more competitive. Hit, hit some high points for us. What, what, are, what are, are some yeah. of the broad-based subject matter we might yeah, expect sure. out of uh, next year's I think the, session? So I think the franchise tax is probably the worst tax that we have. It's really a wall around the state that keeps business out and drives business out of, here, out of the state. Um, you basically just pay, I think it's a, a quarter percent a year on your all your capital. Um, it's a terrible tax. I think if you ask any tax expert, they'll say, this is a really bad policy. And so that's one that I, I either want to phase out or eliminate completely. Um, the inventory tax is another one that's just, you know, taxing businesses on inventory is kind of a gimmick because of course there's a, the state gives a tax credit to the business, the business pays the locals. Um, and so it's kind of a shell game where the state is really effectively just transferring money to locals, uh, really through loans from the business. Uh, and it's really just an, an uncompetitive tax. I mean, you're not going to have um, most, you know, manufacturers, a lot of businesses, they just don't want to get taxed on their inventory, especially when it's just a, a shell game that just mires us in bureaucracy. And so I think that's another uncompetitive tax we really need to look at phasing out or getting rid of. Um, I think the sales tax rate being the highest in the country, that's never a distinction that you want to have. Um, really, that's because the base is so narrow. And especially the locals are very reliant on that as a source of revenue because their property tax base is so narrow. So I think looking at ways of broadening that sales, broadening that sales tax base, even if we can be number three or something like that, you know, that would be better than, than being number one. Um, so we're looking at proposals on how we can lower that rate probably by broadening the base. Um, and then uh, I think flattening the, income ta flattening the income tax on the corporate and personal side are also things that I, I think are, you know, changes that you can look out for that will, I think, put us in a position to eventually eliminate the, the income, the personal income tax in the future. What do you think is going to happen with the, uh, the temporary state sales tax portion that's going to be coming off in 25? Yeah, next year it rolls off. So the 0.45, um, I, would be, uh, I would be in favor of finding some, some way to do some broader reform and then uh, using that 0.45, replacing that, either replacing that 0.45 um, you know, with some, some broader based reform or, you know, using the, keeping the 0.45 and maybe reducing like the income tax, for example, I think that that would be a better, a better use of the money. 
But at the end of the day, I would I would use that 0.45 rolling off as a as kind of an impetus to make some bigger structural changes. Versus, uh, I don't think a straight up renewal is going to happen. And you know, a, a roll if it just rolls off, it, we can probably stomach it based on the current projections. But at the end of the day, I would rather do some of these big structural reforms that'll make us more competitive. Does your business have trouble navigating Louisiana's complex tax code? Do you wish you could spend more time earning a profit and growing your business? Well, we have a solution for you. I'm Jason DeQueer, co-owner of Advantis Consulting. We're a Baton Rouge-based state and local tax consulting firm that offers customizable services from sales property and income tax to economic development opportunities, dispute resolution, and governmental affairs. Our team of professionals brings cross-industry depth, resources, and technical expertise in order to protect and enhance your bottom line. So when does the department sunset? Do you know off the top of your head? This year, yeah. This, it comes well, up in this regular well, it's, session? It's up for vote this year. I guess it sunsets the next year would be. There's been some discussion amongst lawmakers about using this process of renewing uh, departments. Um, as an opportunity to, to do something substantive rather than a rubber stamp, uh, the, the, the framework of state government as we know it. You know, there's talk about privatization on the state level in regard to that. And then we've also seen interest on the federal level with uh, the number of IRS agents uh, that, that are able to go out and, and collect uh, money from, from bad actors. Um, as you as you kind of soak all that in, and 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 is there is there anything to to read into there? Or do you have any similar concerns for your for your own department? So you know we have a lot of those sunset provisions in multiple areas of law, and I like to say the sun never sets in Baton Rouge because all these things just get renewed, right? Right. Um, I I don't think from a revenue perspective whether the Department of Revenue would be one that we you know use that mechanism for, just because you know everybody you know everybody needs the bills paid, and that's really the you know, the engine that pays for everything in state government. So, um, you know, really, I think when people think of the IRS, so the Department of Revenue pays, plays a similar function, but really most of the personal tax level, we kind of piggyback off the IRS. Uh, most of the department is focused on, you know, basically business administration because that those taxes are unique to Louisiana. Um, you know, the taxes they pay, that they pay are ones that, you know, we have to enforce selectively or um, specifically for Louisiana. And then we have a lot of credits that we have to administer as well. So, I mean, that's really where a lot of the department is focused. It's not as much in like the personal tax enforcement. A lot of that is, is kind of automatic piggybacking over what the IRS does. Um, so I don't, I don't really think that sunset mechanism is, is really in play with the Department of Revenue. I know it's been mentioned for other departments like, um, I don't know, I think transportation or something like that maybe or something. But at the end of the day, I think that some of these things are... Uh, you know, I think it's it's a difficult that's a difficult mechanism to use to try and fix these problems. Um, I think really you got to do it through substantive policy, which you could do any year anyway. So you're now serving in, in, in an appointed position. You served in the legislature. Uh, not surprisingly, you a sixteen thousand eight hundred dollar job with a lot of stress and not a lot of reward wasn't that interesting <laughs> to to you and a lot of folks who are trying to get out of it. But do you think you would ever run for office again? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think if the right opportunity, if there was the right opportunity, I, I would ask my wife is probably the best answer I can give you. But, um, you know, I like I like my current job. I, you know, it really is one of the the best jobs I ever had. I mean, I think it's a, it gives me an opportunity to 
you know, have a lot of positive impact and at the same time, you know, not be like in the legislature where you have to juggle this up, you know, another job on the side. So you're in committee meetings, you know, taking work phone calls and answering work emails while you're still trying to, you know, write good policy. That definitely is a struggle. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm happy where I am. If it, if it ever comes along down the road, you know, I'd consider it, but I can't tell you my wife would. <laughs> well, we, uh, I, I used to, to end episodes every now and then with a, a series of questions that were developed by Marcel Proust. He's a French essayist and, and novelist. He, he, he developed, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of like 30 questions that, that were meant to kind of drill down to, to to explain what a, what a person is all about. So we're going to do, we're going to do a few of these and, and in all fairness, you have no idea what these questions are. Uh, so, so, uh, but I think you're going to do well. You're going to do well. Favorite ice cream flavor. I hope it's not on there. Sorry. What is it though? Strawberry chocolate. Um, which living person do you most admire? I can go with the easy one and just say my dad. I mean, I, I think a lot of the quotes, uh, you know, a lot of the quotes I've used on a campaign trail, you know, a lot of my, um, you know, my view of the world, I think is kind of shaped by my dad. It's kind of funny because he was an IRS agent. So, you know, that's where <laughs> that's my right. love from the love for the income tax comes from. But, you know, my dad worked really hard. He, uh, my people ask me all the time, well, what do I do for fun? And I basically just work all the time, either in this job or, I, you know, do handyman projects around the house. He wasn't much of a, uh, you know, he didn't take, uh, didn't play sports, wasn't interested in sports, didn't hunt or fish. He basically just, you know, did projects and, you know, worked all the time. So maybe that's where I get that from. But, you know, I definitely have a, good, a lot of admiration for him. What is your greatest extravagance? My greatest extravagance? Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, uh. I would say I'm I'm relatively Spartan. I drive a you know 2015 Silverado that has you know 160,000 miles on it. Former Senator uh, Freddie Mills looked at me straight face and said, "Putting walnuts on his oatmeal in the morning was his greatest extravagance." <laughs> said, I, "I seriously doubt that." What is the quality you most like in a person? The quality I most like. I would say honesty. I think that at the end of the day, whether I agree with you or disagree with you, I think if you're honest with me, that's, you know, I think in politics is especially, you know, that's what I want to hear. I mean, there's people that I disagree with a hundred percent, but if they tell me straight up, I, you know, this is where I am. I, you know, I can respect that. Uh, what I don't like is when they, they lie to you and tell you they're on board or they're not on, they won't give you an answer. So I, I appreciate honesty the most, I think. Well, if you're someone who appreciates honesty in the world of politics, it's probably important that you have a strong family life and a strong, <laughs> strong personal life to, to find that. What words or phrases do you most overuse? Um, words or phrases? I've been told at the end of the day, I, I use that phrase a lot, just kind of as a colloquialism or something. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I try, I, I feel like I use a lot of quotes, you know, I'll, I'll end up quoting people a lot. You know, I like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I like using quotes from, from smart people because I feel like you, you kind of get to, uh, you know, absorb some of their, their wisdom and, uh, intelligence and you can convey it yourself. So, um, I do like to use a lot of quotes, I would say. You had a few good ones this, yeah. this episode. This one should be easy though. 
what or who is the greatest love of your life? Oh, my wife. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't know why she married me. I think maybe she thought I was in law school, I was going to be rich. And instead I've been in the government service <laughs> for years. Um, but, you know, she's... On, for me, I, she, I can bounce every idea off of her and, you know, I never come up with anything. I mean, most of what you hear, I think people tell me all the time, well, you know, you got a lot of great ideas, you're really intelligent or whatever, but, you know, most of that is my wife that I'm just kind of the, the, the vocal uh, mouthpiece for. Um, we talk about everything and we come up with any, all these, any policy idea, I bounce off her first and she just gives me a great perspective on anything. She's much smarter than I am. So it, it works out. Just got a few more of these. When and where were you or are you happiest? You know, I'm, I'm happiest when I feel like I'm making a difference. Uh, you know, I, in the State Department, we had to do these leadership classes and stuff. And so they do a thing. It's called uh, the Myers-Briggs personality test, right? And it comes sure, up with yeah. some, you know, combination of letters that's supposed to describe you. And I think I was an ENTJ. It's like an extrovert, something or other. And so my friend showed me there's this website. And you basically put that in, it'll tell you your personal hell, right? Based yeah. on your personality type. And so I was working for the federal government and it, I put it in and it said, you're stuck in a, your personal hell is that you're stuck in a large organization making the wrong decisions and you're powerless to change it. And I was like, <laughs> well, I'm here guys. Um, and so now I'm, I'm happy where I am because I think I, I have the ability to make those changes. And we don't just have to say, this is the way things have always been, which is I, you know, one of the most insufferable things for me is when people tell me it's the way things have always been. There's a great documentary on Netflix about Myers-Briggs and how many corporations are baking them into their hiring process and how they're used to gather data online and, and some others. It's, it's interesting uh, documentary. Which talent would you most like to have? Ooh, talent. You know, I've, I've, it's funny for a politician, but I am, you know, I'm not that, uh, I'm not really a good old boy, a backslapper. I don't really have that as a personality. I think Billy Nungesser is might be one of the best people at doing that I've ever met. But, you know, I don't, I don't work a room as well as I should be able to, I'm sure. And so I, I feel like, you know, I would wish that I would have that ease with people to go around and, I, you know, just kind of be a you know, have a, be a more good old boy kind of politician. And, you know, just in general, you don't have to be a politician, but, you know, for me, I think I, I come over as wonky probably more than uh, the average politician, but, you know, having a little bit more, um, you know, like I said, good old boy in me would probably work out better for me too. Retail politics is, is an underappreciated skill set, And, and to be really good at it, you have to be somewhat pathological. And, you know, for a lot of people having that much engagement and human interactions can really take it out of you. But for some folks, it, j it just drives them. They'll, they'll attend the opening of an envelope. Billy, I guess yeah. we're one of the best examples. Um, on what occasion do you lie? Do I lie? <laughs> Maybe to my kids sometimes. I mean, that's about, <laughs> that's probably the most, uh, you know, tell them video games are going to, you know, make them deaf or brains are going to come out of their ears or something like that. But yeah, I would say probably to my kids, unfortunately. Parenting's hard. Sorry, Keaton. He's not talking about you, man. It's, that's, <laughs> it, that's a different thing. Finally, what is your current state of mind? Um, I would say I'm very focused. Uh, I, I look at, I'm looking at the challenges that are ahead of me as the Secretary of Revenue and the impact that I can have. And I'm you know, very focused every day about how can we fix these problems. And so, you know, I recognize that I have a limited amount of time to make the changes that I feel like need to happen. And so, you know, I try not to waste any of my time. And, you know, I think being focused is something that, um, 
is is a key element in that. And you know, luckily I get a, a commute from Mandeville every day to Baton Rouge, so it gives me time to to really focus my day before I even walk into the office. That's it for episode 59. We learned three things from Revenue Secretary Richard Nelson, the son of a tax man. I can't believe I missed that. If, if we do this again, we're going to have to talk more about that. Number one, we learned that the income tax elimination concept is not dead, but, but that there are different versions that folks are talking about, different concepts that, that people are discussing. Uh, next year will be a very big year for taxes. Uh, it may be one of the biggest reform tax-related sessions we've seen in recent memory. And number three, getting hit by lightning doesn't hurt as much as it is confusing, at least in the case of Richard Nelson and his brother. Thank you to Foreign Bureau, who is letting us record and produce at their new uh, headquarters in Baton Rouge. The La Politics Report is underwritten by Advantis Consulting, a leading multi-state, state, and local tax consulting firm delivering customizable end-to-end solutions ranging from turnkey compliance services to high-level planning and advisory. For more information, you can visit www.advantis.com. As a reminder, we have 58 other episodes that we've recorded over the years of the La Politics Report podcast. Beginning next week, we're going to start rolling out uh, some of those archives and making them available to you. Until then, my friends, keep your ethics in compliance, your war chest full, and your politics wild and ambitious. Does your business have trouble navigating Louisiana's complex tax code? Do you wish you could spend more time earning a profit and growing your business? Well, we have a solution for you. I'm Jason DeQueer, co-owner of Advantis Consulting. We're a Baton Rouge-based state and local tax consulting firm that offers customizable services from sales property and income tax to economic development opportunities, dispute resolution, and governmental affairs. Our team of professionals brings cross-industry depth, resources, and technical expertise in order to protect and enhance your bottom line.